0: All three of this week's readings are filled with sights and wonders and mysterious brilliance. The editors who put these passages together for today were attempting, apparently, to offer a few moments of visual bewilderment to match what was described in 2 Kings and the second letter to the church in Corinth and in Mark's Gospel. Each report holds out a truth with a kind of puzzle. What are we to see? What are we to be blind to? What are we to learn from these encounters with the supernatural? In the passage from the Hebrew scripture, we learn of the loyalty of the follower of the prophet Elijah, who's closely named Elisha. When Elijah is summoned to travel, the student says, He will go too. I will not leave you, he declares. And as the episode unfolds, the prophet knows that he is at the end of his life and the student wishes to assume his master's role. But Elijah warns the younger man, only if you see me as I am being taken from you will what you ask be granted to you. And the acolyte Elisha did see his master ascend in a whirlwind and then disappear. And so Elisha can put on his master's mantle, literally and figuratively. The vision is mysterious and not explained by anything in the text, either before or after the event. It is the sharing of the vision that imprints upon Elisha the powers of enlightenment and prophecy. And so we might be ready for Paul's rather harsh tone and predictions in his second letter to the church in Corinth. There he writes that the light of the gospel will be hidden from some and visible to others. The good news, says the apostle, is veiled to those who do not believe. It's rather like Elijah's warning. You must see the light, but that's not guaranteed. Their eyes literally and figuratively are blinded. The true light of the good news, Paul warns the Corinthians, will be seen only those who become slaves for the sake of Jesus the Christ. These are harsh words. In many ways, this passage is discouraging. We want to see the light. We want the good news to be available to us. But in this section of the letter, there is no information about how to achieve the light. Then Paul makes clear that the light is within the very hearts and minds of those who believe. The conundrum is that faith comes first before there is anything to see. Paul's teaching is that by faith the people must step forward into the darkness. Believe in the love of the Savior and then they will be able to step out into the light. In our own time, we're not very eager to step out into darkness. We want to know where we are going. We want a contract, a Google map, a guarantee, a retirement plan. It's hard, almost impossible, to step forward into the dark. Paul preaches that that is what he has done and that is what others must do. If you have ever participated in the exercise of falling freely backward into the arms of a relative stranger, then you have some sense of what such a step of faith might be. So when we come to the gospel reading this morning, we find three disciples who have been willing to step forward into the darkness. These are three who have dropped their nets, taken a blind step. Jesus rewards them with a vision of real light. Not just metaphorical. This is not aha. This is the glaring, blinding light of overwhelming, shadowless, brilliance. In all that that implies, physically and figuratively, John and James and Peter viewed Jesus transfigured before them. They are dazzled, blinded, confounded. And they cannot think of a way to react that will match the power of the experience. And, of course, Jesus knows that they are incapable of an adequate response. And he knows that Paul is not. And knows that we are not. Then Peter says that they should build a little dwelling for each of the prophets of the vision, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. I rather like the older translation of three booths. I think of a ticket booth. And maybe that's not such a bad metaphor. The response of these disciples is almost pathetically inadequate. They want to do something, but since they're overwhelmed, they have no way to offer an appropriate answer. We should feel ourselves allied with their response. We can scarcely understand what happened or what we should do about it either. The chosen disciples are overcome. Jesus has dramatically changed. At best, we are puzzled. Here seems to be an episode that prefigures the final transfiguration of Jesus, which we know occurs after the resurrection. Here he seems to be seeking guidance about what he should do in the face of the almost certain enmity of the Roman government. He calls on his faithful companions and arranges to meet his faithful forebearers. And then he descends, returns to the dailiness of his here and now. Only in the days and weeks that follow this episode do we learn what what counsel he must have received, for he forges on to Jerusalem, entering as a hero, yet knowing that his advancement will be into self-sacrifice. We, having the benefit of the yearly round of our faith, know where he is going. And what awaits him. And I believe that this blinding light of encounter with the prophets. Is the point at which he turns toward his own great martyrdom. Jesus asks his three friends not to discuss what has happened. Yet we sense that they all four will bear the memory of the light. And the fearful moment of knowledge. Forward into Jerusalem. And our encounter today with this transformation of jesus brings to us also a moment of recognition for we are about to take our first steps down from that mountain too as we come to ash wednesday we come to a time of preparation for the end of jesus's earthly ministry and the beginning of his holy martyrdom we need to prepare ourselves and that is what lent is for The next blinding light is the resurrection. And it will take more than a booth to contain it. Amen.